Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. This is the word of God. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we bow in your holy presence today, we are most thankful for these wonderful words of scripture, how comforting they are to us. Help us to realize that the sympathizing high priest that we heard of last week in our message is truly great. He's not just the high priest, he is the great high priest. And Father, we acknowledge with thankfulness the sympathizing care that this wonderful Savior uh, gives to us. We pray that we might leave this place today uh, with uh, a fresh uh, glimpse of his glory, that the word of truth might enter our hearts, we might have a fuller and a more deeper appreciation of the wonders of who Jesus really is. Help us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now you will see a outline as um, Paul mentioned in the bulletin, and we do hope to follow that fairly closely. Uh, don't be alarmed. Uh, I don't plan to spend a lot of time on all those points. There's quite a few of them, and uh, I don't want you to uh, get a little worried that I might be getting bogged down. At least I hope I don't. I've really enjoyed the messages so far in the book of Hebrews from uh, the various brothers that have brought the messages to us. It's been wonderful. And I really hope that you enjoyed today's message as well. I was thinking if you need surgery and you go to your primary physician and he says um, he needs to recommend you or refer you to a specialist, to a surgeon, there's a couple of things that you're worried about. The first thing is that comes to my mind 
Is the surgeon qualified? Is he competent to do the operation? And the second thing would be, does he have experience? This wouldn't be a situation where I would want him the first time he lifts the scalpel to be looking at me. I would want to make sure he's done this before. As you know, most surgeons have five to seven years in internship and residency, and they're highly skilled by the time they take the lead position or the command of a specific surgery. And so you have qualification and experience. If you're an astronaut strapped into a space craft on Cape Canaveral, and you've got all of that power beneath you, multi-stage rockets, millions of horsepower, once you light it, pretty hard to put it out. You ask a couple of questions, and of course, me being an engineer, I would ask these questions very specifically. Did the engineers check, double-check, and recheck the calculations for liftoff of the spacecraft? Were they fully qualified as designers of rocket technology? Does the technical support team have experience? Have they done this before? Have they tested other rockets before they strapped me on the top of this one? And so I'm trying to emphasize to you, we need in these situations qualifications and experience. Well, I'd like to point out from our passage today with these points that I've noted that we have a great high priest who is both qualified and experienced. And this brings great assurance to us, and we can place full, 100% confidence in him. And I hope that you see that as we go through these different points today. Now, first of all, in the first bullet on your outline, you'll see the high priest of Israel. And I've noticed three things about him, his duty, his qualifications, and his limitations. First of all, his duty. And the first sub-point under that was... He needs to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Now, the high priest was the supreme religious leader of the Israelites. He was chosen from the tribe of Levi. Have you ever wondered why Levi was chosen? I did. Because old Jacob, when he talked about his sons and what was going to happen to them all, he didn't have very complimentary things to say about Levi. Very poor, very poor. Well, I don't know because God is sovereign. He chooses. But we may have a clue. When Moses came down from the mount, when the law was given, and he saw the people in idolatry, remember he said to them, who's on the Lord's side? Who came? Only Levi. Levi came to the side of Moses and supported him in the judgment that had to be meted out to the people because of their sin. So possibly that's an answer. But getting back to the priests, the cadre of priests that came from the tribe of Levi and specifically the house of Aaron, these priests were important. Every Jew knew that the high priest was their supreme mediator, their intercessor between himself and God. And that mediator was required because they were alienated from God because of sin. And the person that could solve that problem for them was the priest. And so he was a very commanding figure. He was to carefully follow the instructions given by Moses on the proper way to approach a holy and a righteous God. I was looking up in the book of Malachi what is said about the priests. 
The prophet said there, for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth, men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. And then it says, set your heart to honor my name. So these priests had a very specific and holy responsibility. And the one who was in charge of the administration in terms of how everything was to be conducted, was the high priest. Now this first slide shows you the splendid clothes that drew attention to the glory of the office of the high priest. This rendering may not be entirely accurate, but it's pretty close. For those of you that do um, uh, garment making, sewing, detailed fabrication of, of clothes, this was an amazing piece of work. Detailed embroidery work, pomegranates, bells around the fringe, blue straps and ribbons holding the beautiful breastplate on with all of the stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. There were further stones up on his shoulder. And he wore a lovely mitre or turban. Holiness to the Lord was inscribed across the front of it. And there was tons of gold woven into this beautiful fabric and this beautiful tunic that he wore. And so the high priest had a very unique and lofty position. Now, one of the unique duties of the high priest was to officiate on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16, for those of you that know the book of Leviticus. I think it's quite interesting that on that day, something different happened. Normally, he looked like a king, like a ruler, with these clothes as I've depicted in this slide. But on the Day of Atonement, he looked very, very different. In the the presence of God the Lord, the Holy and Lofty One, even the High Priest is stripped of all honor because he took those clothes off and he put on simple linen garments that were even simpler than the normal garments of a regular priest. And he entered into the holiest of all, which no one else could enter. And he dare not enter that place without blood. The blood of the sacrifice to sprinkle on the altar and to sprinkle on the mercy seat. I think that's quite interesting. He simply becomes the servant of the king of kings. Whose true status in this case is portrayed by the simplicity of his dress. And so... This is just a very quick overview of the duty of a high priest. Um, We could spend a whole message on this because there's a lot of very interesting things about what the high priest did. At the end of Exodus, you remember the details are given for what the tabernacle was to look like and how it was to be constructed. And then you get to the book of Leviticus. You know what Leviticus is? Besides, you probably say a very boring book. The first few chapters of Leviticus are very difficult to read. They're just full of detailed instructions about how they were to conduct themselves in the tabernacle and how the offerings were to be brought. And yet, that's the book of worship in the Old Testament. That's the book that says, okay, we have the tabernacle here. Here's how it's made. Here's all the furnishings. Here's where they're placed and so on and so forth. But here's how you worship in the tabernacle. Here's the right way to approach God. And so there are many lessons to be learned as we look at the book of Leviticus. Don't worry. 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Leviticus. Okay, so the second point, sub-point there was he was to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's the duty of the high priest. Now, you may wonder why the two different terms. It's because not all, not all of the things that were brought into the tabernacle were blood sacrifices. Some of them were gifts. Some of them were wave offerings, sheaves of grain, and so on. And so you have both things covered. Now, this second slide that I've got here, I've tried to summarize in one slide the first 10 chapters of Leviticus. And uh, I've not done it justice. But I just wanted to give you a little flavor. Just in, I want to just give you a few things to think about that may help you in our appreciation of what our ultimate great high priest would do, the Lord Jesus on the cross. There were five main offerings in the early chapters of Leviticus. Burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. The burnt offering, the meal offering, and peace offerings were, for the most part, not 100%, but for the most part, were voluntary offerings. And those offerings, for example, the burnt offering was morning and evening. These offerings pointed to the perfections of the ultimate sacrifice for sin, the Lord Jesus, and what he would do for us. The other two offerings are involuntary offerings. No, they were mandated. You must do them. And in fact, even in the procedures for the first three offerings, oftentimes they were preceded by a sin offering. And so the last two offerings, the sin offering and the trespass offering, are really illustrations to us of who we are and why we need a high priest. Let me just look at these just real quickly. The burnt offering, it was an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. It was entirely consumed by fire, and it was all laid out a very specific way upon the altar, on the brazen altar. By the way, that's the first thing you saw when you looked through the gate. If you looked through the gate of the tabernacle with the white linen curtain, first thing you would see is the big brazen altar. And upon that altar, there was just about 100% of the time, there would be a sacrifice being consumed by the flames. And so the burnt offering offered on, the burnt, offered on that altar reminds us of the perfections of Christ. Ephesians 5.2, Christ also hath loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. God was delighted with the, the perfect sacrifice of Christ at the cross, and the burnt offering illustrates that to us. The meal offering, some. Bibles in the old King James, they called it a meat offering, which didn't make any sense to me because it's not meat, it's, a, it's meal, it's bread, it's a type of bread, it's fine flour mingled with oil, and it speaks to us of the perfect humanity of Christ. That flour was taken, and it was beat down nice and fine, no lumps in it, no, no irregularities, nothing to mar the final product, that's Christ. He's absolutely perfect in his humanity. The peace offering, the emphasis on that offering is now I've been brought into fellowship and in communion with God. I have peace through the blood of his cross. How beautiful that is. So you see what I'm saying by the summary on this slide is what God sees in Jesus Christ are those three aspects. You see the perfections of his person. You see the perfections of his humanity, his perfect humanity. 
and you see the work which he accomplished in bringing reconciliation between sinners who were distant and he, the righteous and holy God. Isn't that wonderful? How wonderful. Then let's move to the last two, the sin offering and the trespass offering. The sin offering, isn't it interesting? By far, by far, it has the most detail of any offering. Verses after verse after verse about how you're supposed to bring the sin offering. You know why? Because they had to cover the sins of the priests, the sins of the congregation, the sins of the rulers, and the sins of the common people. And this offering seems to convict us of sin. Everyone, no one is excluded. Every category was covered. But it provides a remedy. The sin offering reminds us of what Christ did. If those three first offerings remind us of who Christ is, the last two remind us of what Christ did. What did he do? He died on the cross for us, and he took our sin upon him. Have you realized that today? Can you say in your own heart that my sin has been borne by Christ, and he has become my sin offering? Lastly, the trespass offering Specific acts of sin. The sin offering seems to be a more general offering that just relates to the sin of the people, the inherent, intrinsic sinners by nature. But we're also sinners by practice. We do things wrong, and there's all kinds of detail given in Leviticus. Hundreds of them. (laughs) I shouldn't say hundreds, but you you could think of hundreds as, as you look at the lists that are given. For example, witnesses that withhold evidence, not telling the truth, being polluted by touching a dead body, and so on and so forth. All of these were trespasses which had to be covered by the trespass offering. That's enough on Leviticus. Okay. What about these priests? Have you ever thought about how difficult and how busy these guys were? This was an incredibly difficult job. These are big animals. They're bulls, goats, lambs. And these animals all had to be manipulated. After they became the sacrifice, their life was taken. They had to be prepared in a very specific way. Things had to be lifted. Ashes had to be taken out. The lamps in the holy place had to be trimmed. The showbread had to go on the table of showbread. All of these things involved tremendous amount of work. Is it any wonder that they were appointed at age 30. There was some apprenticing going on earlier than that. But at age 30, they became full-fledged, it appears. And they had to retire at 50. Why? I, don't think it's, I think it's because they were probably unable to do the job after 50. Just the physical requirements of this back-breaking work in the tabernacle. But I hope this gives you a flavor. That's all I'm trying to do here this morning without getting into over-spiritualizing or into too much detail, that there are beauties in the Old Testament forms of worship that are portending and pointing us forward, are really prototypes of the great privileges we enjoy and the worship that we have of our great high priest. And so this gives you a sense of the duty of the high priest. Let's look at his qualifications in the second bullet. It's his qualifications. You notice I've got uh, three sub points there. 
You notice he was chosen from among men, it says in our verses. Chosen among men. God didn't send Michael, the archangel, or some other angelic being, someone from heaven. No emissary like that. It was a flawed fellow human being who could relate completely to our earthly pilgrimage. I think that's beautiful. I think that's lovely. You ever thought about it this way? A priest is closer to men. God's over here. He's close to men. And he's bringing our sacrifices into the presence of God to look for forgiveness and to intercede on our behalf from men to God. But a prophet is different. A prophet listens and hears the word of God, so he's closer to God and then brings his message to the people. So there's really two different aspects there when you think about that. And so the priest was chosen from among men. Secondly, he's called by God. Even Aaron had to wait for this call in Exodus 28. He had four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. All these had to be consecrated in the service of the tabernacle. And this is outlined in tremendous detail in Exodus 29. No one could take this office just to himself. They had to be called by God to this office. Let me give you an example of someone that tried to do this that was not called. If you recall in 2 Chronicles 26, oh, I know you don't recall, so I'll just say what it is. <laughs> king Uzziah, King Uzziah was a good king. It says he followed the Lord. And he started well. He did serve the Lord faithfully. But then you know what happened? He became proud. And after he gained a lot of power and prestige, then he decided, well, I'm a king, but I want to be a priest too. So he went into the tabernacle and he began to, he went into the, uh, into the tabernacle temple and decided to take upon himself the office of priest. And the priests that were there, that were officiating, said, you can't do this. Don't do this. This is not the right thing to do. You're not called to this work. Even though you're the king, he wouldn't listen to them. He stands beside the altar in the holy place. Even while he was standing there, the leprosy became evident in his forehead. And he was a leper till the day of his death. God does not permit anyone to take this office. It has to be someone appointed and called by God. There are other examples, but we don't have time to look at them. Characteristic of compassion, the third sub-bullet there. Pity for both the ignorant and the wayward. The people, the priest represents our sinners and even though they don't know it half the time, they naturally stray and sin against God. Some of, them, some of the sins are known, but even there's sins that they commit that they don't even know about. He must have compassion. And in the ESV, as Linda's read to us, says that he must deal gently. Deal gently. Mustn't lose his temper. You know, be frustrated with repeated failure. What are you doing here again? You were just here two days ago. Are you bringing another sacrifice? What happened? He's got to be patient. He's got to be patient. Isn't it good that he's also flawed and that he understands how weak we are? He must sympathize with his fellow Israelites and advise them on how they could deal with sin per the specific instructions given by God. And so these are wonderful qualities. And to some degree, we see examples of this being 
demonstrated in the Old Testament priests. In other cases, we see abject failure. That leads me right to the other point, his limitations in your, your outline. He was sinful himself, our text says, and also he was subject to death. All the priests, you'll notice if you looked at the accounts in the Old Testament, had to offer sin offerings for themselves, not just for the people and for the congregation. Even the high priest himself, on the great day of atonement, when he entered in to the holiest of holies, had to offer a bull offering as a sin offering for himself before he ever did that. And so we are constantly reminded of their own failure. Nadab and Abihu, two of the sons of Aaron that I've mentioned already, in Leviticus 10, took matters in their own hands. It says in, those, in that passage that they offered strange fire in their censer. Now, the normal procedure, which was specifically stated as to how it was to be done, was the censer seemed to be a shallow pan that would hold coals. And the coals were to be taken from the brazen altar that I've mentioned already, where the sacrifice was made. And those hot coals would be on, in the censer. Then the special formula of the incense would be poured out over the coals, and fragrance, a sweet fragrance, a lovely smell would ascend from those hot coals igniting the incense. By the way, that incense was a very special formula. You couldn't just fabricate that and use it elsewhere. It was only to be used in the worship of God. But I want you to notice something. The hot coals had to be taken from the brazen altar. And I think what happened with Nadab and Abihu is they did not take the coals from the brazen altar. They maybe got them somewhere else, lit their own, created their own fire somehow. It's only... True worship, let me say it this way. True worship only ascends to God when it's linked to the sacrifice. I think that's beautiful. That's beautiful. It's the fragrance of that incense that ascends. Why? Because the hot coals consumed the sacrifice. And Jesus was consumed for us. And that the fragrance of that sacrifice ascends to God and we can just rejoice in it today. And we don't bring strange fire we go to the altar, to the place where Jesus sacrificed himself, and we just say, hallelujah, what a savior. Last point, subject to death. The priest could only serve for a limited time. Not only did he get weak and unable to serve, but the high priest became largely a figurehead as he became really old. And Eli is an example of that. They were unable to for, perform their duty very well. And how disappointing you think about this. I had a favorite priest that I would come to, and he knew me already. He'd already done my sacrifices before. I knew him. And now he's got old. He can't perform his functions anymore, and he dies. How disappointing that is. He's gone. There are other priests, but I really liked him. He understood my frailty, my weakness. I didn't have to explain everything to him. He just knew. 
Will this new priest have a care for me like the old one did? Well, it's sad, isn't it, that these priests ultimately died and could no longer represent the people to whom they served. So let's move to the beauty of this great high priest that we have, Jesus Christ, the second part of your outline. Jesus Christ, his fitness as high priest, his appointment. There's two things noted here under appointment. You'll see I've noted them there. Called by God to a higher order and confirmed with an oath. Now, I thought a long time about this section because it was, it was a question in my mind I could not seem to get much light on. There are two Psalms quoted, Psalm 2. And you notice in the verse it says, You are my son, today have I begotten you. And then there's a second quotation from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now why not go directly to Psalm 110, which says you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why does he insert the other psalm ahead of that? Well, I don't know whether I've got the right answer or not, uh, but let me just give you a suggestion. Perhaps what he's doing here is he's saying, by the declaration of God in Psalm 2, speaking to the Son, he is God's Son, not merely because he himself says so, but because the Father declares it. It's one thing to say, well, this is who I am, and to take these honors to yourself. But it's quite another if God the Father says, you are my son, today have I begotten you. So Christ doesn't take the office of high priest to himself. He was appointed by the same entity who said, you are my son. Now this idea of begotten, this word means to beget, to bring forth, or maybe to, to display And there are three places in the New Testament where it's used. In Acts 13, it's used in connection with the glorious resurrection. God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, that is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee, or brought you forth from glorious resurrection. In this case, in, in Hebrews 1, it's also referenced with respect to the angels. He never said to the angels, you're my son, this day have I brought you forth. You're an angel, you're not the son. And here in this, in this chapter, in Hebrews 5, he's saying in connection with priesthood, you are my son, today have I brought you forth. You are the appointed high priest, and not just the high priest, you are my son. You are of the same kind. You are deity. You are God. That really adds weight to the second quotation when he says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this uh, is divine appointment is to a higher order, not of Aaron. Jesus never, just think about this, and maybe this, you haven't really thought maybe about this. When Jesus was here on earth, You notice when he was in the temple, he was there quite a few times. He never attempted to minister in the temple as an ordinary priest, let alone as a high priest. He made no attempt to get himself installed illegally as high priest in Aaron's line. That was not his intent. He was the wrong tribe anyways. He was of the tribe of Judah, not Levi. 
His appointment, this verse is pointing out, is to a different order, which was even prophesied back in Psalm 110, the order of Melchizedek. Now, we don't have time to look at Melchizedek today. Melchizedek is a very interesting character. We don't know hardly anything about him. And Hebrews will go on to amplify this tremendously in chapter 7. And I'm sure we'll see many wonderful things when we get there. But Melchizedek is the only one in the Old Testament that combines king, king of Salem, and priest in one person. King and priest. Isn't that lovely? We have someone who represents us before the Father, who not only is deity, he's the king of kings and lord of lords, and he is the true, rightful high priest. He is king and priest. I could say much more about Melchizedek, but for time's sake, I'm going to move on. Think of Melchizedek, though, just in summary, as a prototype of our Lord, as a prototype of what our Lord would do. When he met Abram, coming from rescuing Lot and the slaughter of the kings, you recall he brought him bread and wine. That's interesting, isn't it? Brought him bread and wine. The Lord has left us bread and wine to remember him by. How wonderful that is. And then the last point about his appointment is Jesus was confirmed with an oath. This is not the case for the Old Testament priest. Yes, they had an elaborate one week plus time period for consecration. Being installed, being invested into that office. But... The Lord swears by himself, could not swear by any higher person, the declaration of God the Father, the irrevocable oath of Jehovah. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Much higher order, king-priest combined, lives in the power of an endless life, indestructible. How wonderful that we get to rejoice in Jesus Christ as our great high priest. Now his qualification Our Lord took on humanity. You know that. The incarnation. He became man. He became one of us. I think it was Albert McShane said, we could think of his reigning over humanity from his lofty heavenly throne without being human. But we could not think of him serving us as our great high priest without being one of us. I think that encapsulates it well. He came so that he could be one of us. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same. Took part of the same. He is flesh and blood. Two unique natures combined in one person, the God-man, perfectly human, perfectly divine, in one person. Wholly undefiled in his humanity, Even when Mary bore the Lord, the natural vessel through which Christ came into the earth, came into being upon the earth uh, as a human, that holy thing that shall be born of thee, uncontaminated by sin, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Third point, moved with compassion for sinners. There's many examples of this in the the New Testament, and um, I'm sure you have thoughts that come to your mind right away. One that came to me was in Matthew 9, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having 
no shepherd. The blind men. Jesus had such compassion on those men. The people said, be quiet. You're making way too much racket, you two men over here. There's all these crowds around. The Lord is busy. He doesn't have time for you. But the Lord stopped. And he had compassion and pity on those men that were blind. And he said, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they just said, Lord, that we might receive our sight. And the Lord gave them their sight. He had tremendous compassion. And that's just a couple of very small examples of the tremendous heart of love and compassion of Jesus, our Savior. He was moved with compassion for sinners. To what degree? The death on the cross. That's true compassion. And then the eternal efficacy of his priesthood. I was speaking to you a moment ago about the priest dying. How sad that is. Jesus never dies. He's risen to live in the power of an endless life. And he represents us forever. We don't need to get to know anyone else. He is the one who understands us. He's the one that presents me to the Father blameless, which is unbelievable to me. How could that be? It's because of his victorious work at the cross and his representing and taking my feeble prayers and praises and making them acceptable to God Almighty. And so we have a highly qualified high priest. But then let's just close with the word about experience. Experience. What kind of experience does the son have? I would like to point out something about this verse which is a little awkward in the way it's worded. You notice in verse 8 it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. When you look at that first you think, well, we're sons. He we're sons, and yes, we learn obedience through suffering. That's what the Lord tells us he'll do. In fact, we, we suffer discipline sometimes because the Lord has to discipline us. And we learn through suffering. But this doesn't mean that he was a son among many, or he was a son in that sense that he was a son of God. It, it's different. It's the fact that son though he was. In other words, he is the son the unique one-of-a-kind, son of the Father, son though he was, the mystery, the marvel of it. So read it that way. Son though he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered. To me, that completely changes the perspective. Son though he was. First of all, he learned the high cost of obedience. Isn't it interesting that the scriptures are not ashamed to tell us that our blessed Lord in his perfection, son though he was, in the garden he offered up strong crying and tears to the one who was able to deliver him. Why? Because of the anticipation of the awful price that he would pay and the suffering that he must enter into. And he was heard because of his piety or because of his reverence. His reverence, holy submission to God above. Did he want to drink the cup of God's wrath? No, he did not want to drink it. Naturally speaking, humanly speaking, you would recoil from that. He submitted, however, to the will of God and was obedient to enter into that suffering. Now think about it this way. He would not have learned or paid the price of obedience 
to God if he had not visited our world. That's impossible for him to have experienced this without becoming human, entering into this world where we are, and then enduring the suffering of the cross. That's the sense in which he learned. You know, our proof of obedience is often revealed in situations where the obedience is difficult and perhaps not pleasant. And so that's the sense in which I think it means he learned the high cost of obedience. Then he was perfected by becoming our Savior. The last point, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You say, well, this is odd. I thought he was perfect. In what sense was he made perfect? This doesn't really imply at all that he was imperfect previously. Rather, the meaning, I think, is this. His personal experience of obedience suffering unto death fully qualified through experience the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Savior. You notice the being made perfect is directly linked to being the source of eternal salvation. He was perfected in the giving of himself as our substitute and Savior. It would not have been possible for him to do this if he had stayed in heaven and never came to earth. Lastly, notice the end of this verse. He's the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Oh, that, that's interesting. Obey. Why doesn't it say believe? He's the source of eternal salvation to all those who believe him. It doesn't say that. It says who obey him. Now, of course, you could say, well, obedience is involved in faith. And yes, believing is part of that. But... In the context of this passage, I think it's quite interesting, he says to all those who obey him. Maybe it's emphasizing to us, just like we heard from Ben Lewis in chapter 4 about failing to enter into rest. Remember, he very, very nicely gave us the illustrations of the Old Testament people that exited Egypt, but then they didn't believe God. They didn't obey him. They showed by their actions that they went through the motions, but they really didn't believe. They didn't trust in Jehovah. And this is what maybe this is emphasizing, that all true believers are characterized by obedience. First, we accepted and believed the gospel. Then we trust and obey our new Lord and Master. First John 2 and 3 tells us, And by this we know that we have come to know him, what? If we keep his commandments. So the true test of genuine faith and believing in Christ as Savior is in our perseverance and our carrying on. Let us hold fast. Let us seek to honor the Lord in our life. And yes, we often falter in our obedience. However, the Holy Spirit brings us back in repentance and we seek his grace and strength to work out in practice the obedience we originally professed. Sometimes obedience is hard, very hard. That's why it's wonderful to have Jesus Christ, the experienced one, as our high priest. He's fully qualified to minister to us because he learned firsthand what obedience involves by what he suffered. He has experienced it. He is our perfected high priest. And so we conclude with fresh assurance that Jesus, as our high priest, is both qualified and experienced. 
you can depend on him. The hymn writer has said it well. The holiest now we enter in perfect peace with God, regaining our lost center through Christ's atoning blood. Though great may be our dullness in thought and word and deed, we glory in the fullness of him who meets our need. Much incense is ascending before the eternal throne. God graciously is bending to hear each feeble groan. To all our prayers and praises, Christ adds his sweet perfume, and love the censer raises their odors to consume. Please stand as we close. In closing, I would like to give you the benediction from Jude, verse number 24. Please pray with me. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen.